Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? Once again, it's special guest time, but before we get to that, with me as always is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Doing really well mate, doing really well. Good to see you again, good to talk to you again, good to have our guests back. More guests. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a story about that, isn't there? There is a little bit, yeah. This, this, is, this is like Lost Episode 11. But that, we, that no one's ever heard of since we recorded it. We did have a full interview uh, with the wonderful Rob Schwab, and unfortunately, a laptop died in the making of that podcast. So uh, we lost it, and we've had to have you back on again. But so, thanks very much to Rob for being super generous and giving yet another hour of his time to us incompetent fools trying to have an interview with him. Yeah, exactly. We've tried to keep it natural as well. I mean, I don't think we asked all the same questions in the same order. And Rob was generous enough to just like, you know, regale us with his tales in gaming over the years. And it certainly felt fresh and new to us, even second time round. So hopefully when you're listening in, you'll get a lot out of this interview. I know we did. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rob's written a, a lot of stuff. Don't know who he is. He's involved in at least three editions of D&D. He's most famously known for now Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is just in Kickstarter. We'll uh, drop a link in the show notes about that. But there are literally dozens or scores of products that he's brought out for the year. He's one of the most prolific writers I've ever seen, I think. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, probably known over in the UK, if not for any of that stuff, then probably for his involvement with Warhammer. Uh, as one of the prime movers in Warhammer 2nd Edition when it was being looked after by Green Ronin. So it was definitely, that was the game that brought Warhammer back to life after a long time being fallow. So um, loads of our Brit listeners will know him for that. But internationally, yeah. Look him up on Wikipedia and prepare to scroll because there's an awful <laughs> lot of work there. Between him and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, who we had on last week, I don't think there's any words left in English. <laughs> I've got RSI just from scrolling through all those separate bodies of work. <laughs> yeah, he was a brilliant guest and, uh, and very engaging. Had loads to say. Uh, as you would expect for a man with lots of ideas and can write a lot of words, funnily enough. But yeah, great insights as well into how D&D was made and uh, also uh, like what it's like to be a one-man band. We had Shane Ivey on not so long ago and he's another guy who's not only producing loads of great content but having to do all the other stuff that goes into being a one-man RPG company as well. So it's really inspiring stuff. Uh, word of warning, we do get a little bit fruity on occasion during this one. Can't be helped, really. There's no kids listening, are there? Not in here anyway. Not at this time. Nah, you'll be all right. Uh, yeah, so there we go. Uh, Rob Schwab coming up with the interview with the Demon Lord himself. Hope you enjoy it. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just to head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new smart party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the smart party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! So here he is, the man himself, uh, an author, prolific author, and one of the, the greatest writers in role-playing right now, Mr. Rob Schwab. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, living the dream, actually. It's good to have you on. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is great. The entire planet together through the tubes of the internet and all sorts of magic is going to happen. It's like landing that thing on Mars today. I think it's that kind of stuff that's happened. There's yeah. that level of technology come together, which is good. So... <laughs> It's enabled Essex, Nottinghamshire, and Tennessee to talk to each other. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> the, the golden triangle. <laughs> awesome. So, one of the first things we want to ask you about then, because you, you've got a current Kickstarter, but let's talk about your, your sort of magnum opus, the thing that you're pumping stuff out at a rate of knots, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Now, currently at the minute, there's things like Spyhander, and I'm currently into Warhammer 4th Edition, so there's a lot of this kind of dark and dirty fantasy stuff going around, but you've been uh, working on the Demon Lord for quite some time now, haven't you? Uh, a couple of years, yeah. Um, I think we launched the Kickstarter in for the, for the main game in 2015, and now I'm looking at my fourth year of doing this, which is kind of cool and fun. You know, when you think, I've been thinking about it that, uh, you know, a lot of new role-playing games that come out are, they have a very short shelf life. But I think uh, we've managed to uh, keep this this guy going for at least, you know, a little while. So it's been good. Uh, and what do you think the appeal is of something like Shadow of the Demon Lord, which probably is a, a departure from sort of classic D&D? &D? Would you say that it's just had a bit of a renaissance recently? But that's more 
heroic, I guess, and nice and shiny compared to perhaps some more down and dirty stuff that, that yourself writes about. Yeah, I think that's probably driven. I think the success we've, we've enjoyed is probably due to accessibility. Uh, Demon Lord is extremely easy game to, to pick up and learn. Uh, it's fun to play, and it has a, kind of it's been designed to be short, focused campaigns. So you're only in for like eleven sessions to complete a campaign from start to finish. So I think that's been probably the strongest draw. It's also familiar enough to other big box role playing games. I think people can just kind of step in and say, I have an understanding of what's going on. But on the other side, uh, Demon Lord does take the very best parts of fantasy campaigns uh, and makes the backdrop, you know, so you've got the apocalypse kind of cooking in the background and uh, the walking dead and plants going crazy and uh, the sun turning black and uh, magic going awry and all the other kind of crazy things that I think people like to do for their capstones. And by making that the backdrop, uh, the setting of the game, uh, it makes it more, more, far more exciting, I think. Yeah, definitely. Is it, is it pick your own apocalypse? Because you mentioned quite a few there. Do you have to have them all, or can you just have one or two? I think you could have them all, but uh, typically <laughs> you can have one at a time. <laughs> one apocalypse at a time. How very British. I'm getting a cue. <laughs> and have you got your own personal favourite, or really does it just depend how you feel? It really depends. Uh, you know, we have, I have fond memories of, of playing. I guess there's a one that's about the heart of winter, and I ran a D&D campaign back in second edition where winter had kind of wrapped itself around the world and uh, was uh, driven by this evil bad guy who lived in the far north, of course. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a cool, cool thing. So I like it has a, it has at least that part going for it. But the one that turns where people turn into beastmen, I like that a lot. I like mm-hmm. you know, Uncle Bob and oh, my gosh, he's now a warg and he just <laughs> made the baby. So, uh, you know, that's it's that kind of thing that I, I, I enjoy that surprising transformation. Cool. And you touched on it there that you've got really set limits on your campaigns, which is interesting because some people like short form games. Some people like to play for three years with the same group, that kind of stuff. What's the thinking behind having just a set number of sessions and then your campaigns done? Well, when we were working on fifth edition, a lot of the data, we, uh, a lot of the insights we got from our customers and through, um, uh, yeah, through our, from our customers was that typically campaigns lasted about two months before, or gaming groups would last about two months before things would fall apart. Uh, and that gave us kind of like an eight week window to, to really kind of grab people's attention. Now that may, that mid number may have shifted in the last couple of years as like, as D and D become super popular again. But I realized that if the average gamer is only playing maybe eight game sessions before they're game is done then perhaps i should design a game that fits modern gaming sensibilities right because we only have so many ways we can cut up our entertainment pie and (laughs) a 20 year long campaign is not is is just not practical anymore so i figured that if i could do if i can get people to do uh, eight games i could get them to do 10 or 11 and that was the design adventures i figured that you know there there's a lot of masturbatory gameplay where people will think about playing the game, but don't actually really do play the game. Uh, and, you know, that's like, well, I'm going to have this wonderful campaign and we're going to track, you know, food and water and arrows. And we're going to move from hex to hex as we're going to the dungeon. And then we're going to spend entire sessions talking about the intricacies of our personal lives with our care through the lens of our characters. And I just don't know that people have that kind of time or attention anymore. So rather than, uh, expect that this is going to be a perfect simulation of the lives of these imaginary folks. What, we're, what I'm treating this as is this is an adventure story that just happens to have a lot of horrific trappings and the game is going to zoom in on those most important moments uh, in the overarching story and that's what's going to tie everything together. And what goes on behind the scenes or in between adventures it's up to you. You can figure that out on your own but uh, as when we come together as a, as, a, as a group we're telling the best parts. We're focused on the best parts, the most exciting things. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it, it is one of those things I think quite a few people do like. Um, like I play with some guys for The One Ring, which is Tolkien-based stuff. Yeah. And I like the, the, the stories and the journey and getting somewhere and doing things. Uh, and some of those guys just wanted to like stir pots of beans on the plains of Beleriand and sell, sell power trade. It's just kind of like, I'm not, we need to be two different groups because like, what you're doing and what I want to have a game just don't match up, which which is fine. I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just Neither, you, need, right. you just totally. need to know what it is you want out of a game and do that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, and I think it's just about I think it's about managing expectations uh, for your audience. I mean, most of the people I play with we're we're graying. We're all in our early forties, and you know, m- most of many of us have kids or cats, 
uh, and you know other and other responsibilities. And so, just trying to even get us together in the same room once a month or twice a month is is a Herculean task. So I figured that, and I think that a lot of gamers from my gener- our generation uh, have similar problems. And that's what sure. I'm—that's really what I'm kind of chasing—is those folks. And I guess when we all started out as well, there weren't that many games in town. So if you were going to play every week or every couple of weeks, you were choosing from a handful of things that you wanted to do. But but now there's there's so many things that you want to try, and so many different campaigns that you want to try within a system too. So the idea of playing Shadow of the Demon Lord ten times and every time being that gives it an even longer shelf life than those i feel than those games that have got a big campaign set up from the beginning right i think so too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely so you've got something new and big and exciting out kickstarter right now tell us all about that uh we are trying to raise funds to actually we actually raised funds to uh produce a cult philosophy which is our first massive expansion to the shadow of the demon lord game uh and now we're 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 trudging towards uh, and through the stretch goals, uh, knocking down one at a time. I think to that, right now, we're less than two grand away from uh, getting two beefy monstrous pages entries, one to cover the broodlings and the other one to cover uh, genies, which I can talk about later. But the mm-hmm. most important thing is the book itself. This book is, I think it's going to be 192 pages, but it might wind up being 224. It is loaded with over 800 spells. I think it has 64 paths two dozen monsters it gives you uh new uh spells for every tradition of the game and introduces uh the madness tradition uh, it also expands uh the range of spells from zero to five to zero to ten and i'm imagining that the higher ranked spells would be things that characters would find uh, as incantations or have subjected to them by super crazy scary bad guys but also uh the game the book does include the paragon legendary path that allows uh game to continue playing beyond level 10 so it is a load it's a book chock full of content loaded with good stuff scary 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 stuff Hmm. (laughs) it really is and like i think you've mentioned other alluded to it certainly that having lots of stuff out for your game and keeping it alive is what's What's keeping it so strong? It's interesting that D&D's taking a slightly different approach in the new iteration, that they're only bringing out a book sort of every three months or something, really. or you know, certainly a big one. But there's clearly an appetite for like both styles, right? Because you, you're, you're, like, I've got Carpal Tunnel Syndrome earlier trying to like, scroll down the list of all your products for this game. So there's a lot of content already, and you seem like quite keen to get more. I mean, you've obviously got like a very fertile imagination and loads of stuff you can bring out with this Kickstarter. So where does all this stuff come from just pop into your head and then straight out of the page um, it's, i think it's largely driven by my ocd when i i think it was a uh, two years ago i mapped out everything that i would, could possibly want to do for demon lord and i've largely checked off everything on that list right i mean i've covered different areas of uh of basic rules and want to give um, more information about poisons and diseases we've got resources for that we want to explore gnomes we can do that we want to have more adventures cover different parts of the map and the thing about uh, my strategy with uh, for product releases for demon lord has all been driven by giving the customer exactly what the customer wants rather than giving the customer a big pile of something that might not have anything in it that the customer wants <laughs> uh, so this allows the audience to kind of select the supplements that they're going to use and never have and never waste money on things they're never going to use sure. um, you know, with the hope that, you know, well, I really need gnomes for my game, but man, those skin changers look really cool. And maybe I'm going to get that. And it's only going to cost me two bucks to do it. That seems like a really good bargain. And now I'm every time I'm adding to my game, I'm changing the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. So we do a mix of small releases and big releases. Uh, as far as where it comes from, it's, you know, it's the OCD part, but it's also probably fear. Uh, and, you know, I'm it's fear of running out of ideas. Uh, I don't have, I haven't had that problem yet. Uh, where the well's gone dry, um, but I'm always thinking about new and disturbing ways to torment players and groups, new things that make me un- uncomfortable, situations that make me nervous. Uh, there was one adventure that's in terrible beauty, and I remember that I had it was staring at the blank page, and I was like, "What? What can I do with this adventure that would make it stand apart?" And I said, "Having a being a child and walking in and your dad masturbating—that is what. <laughs> that is something we've all done it." But no one's ever written an adventure where the whole thing <laughs> in this one moment. So I did that. I built the whole thing and explained why and all this other stuff. It was 
I was pretty happy with the end result, but those are the kind of things I think about that kind of start the process. <laughs> I'm glad to end as a happy finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love about Demon Lord Rob is uh, is you're not afraid of writing adventures and publishing them. Uh, you've got loads out for it. I mean, that's something a lot of games still don't really do enough of. I think is, I mean, how important is it to you to have adventures available for people? That must be a way for them to come to your game because they can see a way of playing it. Yeah, uh, adventures are crucial. Um, the drawback is they don't sell. And, ah, uh, okay. I was going to ask because that's that's the old the old story. I wondered if it was still true in, so in a day true. when PDFs were easier and so on. You know, we, I might release an adventure that sells 150 copies total after mm-hmm. being out for six months, and then I have another product that sells that has got a broader appeal to players and game masters, which sells six times that number. And But I think that as game creators and as publishers, we need our audience to play. We want our audience to play these games. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not interested in just creating pretty things that people look at once and put on their shelves. I'm interested in creating pretty things that people want to use and can use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and asking a game and writing adventures is, is hard. It's never yeah. easy. And it's not easy for anybody that does them. Unless you're Chris Perkins, who can apparently bang out adventures while he's sleeping. But uh, so the way I kind of reconcile uh, the cost that goes into making adventures uh, versus and versus return is that I just look at it as a marketing expense. Mm -hmm. Every time I release an adventure, I'm just losing a little money, but it's going to grow. It gives my ambassadors, the game masters, material for them to go and make customers of other players. And so right. there are there there they are they you do get a return on your investment by making them. It just it's often hidden, uh, but you see how the numbers grow, right? I mean that's kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. So every time we put out an adventure, we've got an adventure coming out. I think in a couple of weeks called "The Mother's Burden" by Eric Kegel, and I imagine that adventure will do just as well as pretty much all the adventures do. But I know it's going to be another another way that veteran when and new uh, Demon Lord game masters can just jump in and tell a really cool and disturbing story. Mm. Yeah, all about that. Um, and you were talking about the fact that Wizards has taken a different model, a different approach. I find it really interesting too, but I think they've kind of realized the same thing that game masters are the most valuable resource that every RPG publisher has. And by producing big, honking, sexy adventures, it's going to give game masters something to use in order to recruit new players and sell more players' handbooks. Sure. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And restricting the number of player option pieces that D&D provides allows you to control system bloat and uh, power creep, which is not something I'm really worried about in Demon Lord because the campaigns are so short. If you've got a busted character, then you only have to put up with it for a few sessions before the campaign's over. Mm. Yeah, I think quite a few companies are getting on board with that idea of an adventure as well. I just noticed I've mentioned Warhammer before, and they've just uh, published something for free in a PDF on their site. I know that the Chaos Team have gotten more like Quick Starter with Reinquest and Vicathelu and stuff like that. So it's definitely an accessible way. And I think it's probably like partly to do with having the internet, right? That you can you can make your core products or whatever else. And then as a PDF, you can give out other things that are going to enable more people to come into your game. So that's, that's going to be a good thing, right? And do you find like, the online sales of what enables you to put so much stuff out there as well, or does oh, it- for sure, yeah. The lion's share of my business comes from online sales, and I think that's and, I, and I'm totally comfortable with that. I, mean, I know um, my friend, um, that's name drop, but Monty Cook, when he started off uh, after he left uh, Wizards of the Coast, his whole business with Malhavic Press was all digital based, mm-hmm. and all of it, you know, and that's and he really, you know, having had long conversations with him. Just talking about the success of Malhavic Press inspired me to do to follow a similar path with Demon Lord, and it's been really successful mm-hmm. so far. And how about the uh, the community element as well? Because the fan base are now part of the publishing business, aren't they? Right. So, We've got Disciples of the Demon Lord, which allows people to make content for both Shadow of the Demon Lord and the Godless setting. And mm-hmm. we started off with just adventures only, but now uh, I'm allowing anything from new paths to monsters to extra rules or whatever they want to do and keep this game going. And it gets another way of allowing the kind of letting the, the fan base monetize their, their hobby, but also get more cool things out. It yeah. takes some pressure off of me. Yeah. And it's, and it's a little bit of outsourcing, isn't it really? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and it's been so far. We've got. We've, I think we've got uh, six or seven products out for Disciples of Demon Lord. I'm looking forward to seeing more. I keep hearing people telling me they've got stuff in the works. So, uh, and I've been really happy with what I've seen so far. So, I think it's um, you know, a lot of people really get the game, and I find that exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, uh, the the nicest things ever about releasing anything. I mean, I'm sure you still get a thrill from this. Please to convince me that you do. But the idea of somebody your game is really. But that doesn't mean you have to give up a little bit of the, you have to let it go. You have to let it go out there and other people twist it and do things with it. But you seem happy with what you see coming back to you. I think, yeah, I think so. And I mean, that's why I didn't open up the game from the very start because, you know, to to get down to brass tacks, I, I am in business. I am in business to keep my lights on and keep my cats fed and pay my bar tabs. So, uh, not opening up Demon Lord in the manner of the, of the OGL was just because I needed to control the message mm. and the tone and all that. But now the game is pretty established, and I've almost exhausted all of what I want to do. I mean, I've probably got another 30 products in mind for Demon Lord, and I'm probably <laughs> probably done. Just the 30 uh, products left to go. <laughs> three more, right? But... Uh, you know, and that's and then, but at that point, I'm willing to hand off the torch to whoever wants to, you know, to to the disciples and let them keep this game alive. And it's not like it's going anywhere. These books are going to be available forever, yeah, or at least until I die. Then I think my wife will probably take them all down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's um, there seems to be just some games that are a little bit like that. Like uh, there's a British game called Slay Industries that came out decades ago and that was kept alive for i don't know how many years by some guy doing a fanzine max yeah. Mantler, was he produced that and you know and the fan circuit i think it's just it's unfortunate for that particular license that it's never actually come back out again really it's sort of it's had a couple of murmurings and stuff like that but i think we've now got the technological tools and like you said like in with discord or slack or whatever else all these different groups where people who are like many can get together it's yeah. not just one lonely guy in his shed making a fanzine trying to keep a game alive. You've now got easy access to people across the globe who can who think like you. You know, you're not alone. You can sort of get on the right. internet and find other people that are interested. So I think that's really handy. Yeah, for sure, I agree. And do you find that's that's the good way? Presumably, you drive what products come next, isn't it? Because you can speak to the fans and kind of go like, "Do you want to know about trolls or uh, cyborg hoblins or something?" Or you know, you can just make stuff up and go, "What what are you guys interested in?" And see what sort of shouts come back, right? Yeah, we've done it a couple times. Uh, we did that early. I think I guess it was in year two, and we just did some general kind of polling to kind of get a sense of the areas that people were most interested in. And that really did establish the main lines for Demon Lord with uh, monstrous pages, lands and shadow, paths of shadow, and so on. That each kind of carve up the various aspects of the game and puts, it, and then allows us to fill products uh, into those various channels. And you know, some of them. monstrous pages are always fun because I think you get because every monstrous page's entry is really like an adventure template it's loaded with ideas to kind of build out the things you want to do where lands and shadow is more more traditional setting stuff but also loaded with ideas for game masters to kind of take it to the next step I think my big hope is that uh, Disciples of the Demon Lord will eventually start using and mining uh, information for monstrous pages and lands and shadow and using the stuff that's in there to inspire them to create more stuff for those various aspects of the game. Yeah, that's, I mean, you can get some kind of feedback loop there, or like callbacks to other things that have happened and reinforce yeah. what's already there. I think that's it. Just gives you a stronger story generally, doesn't it? If you've got that continuity to it. Yep, I like that kind of idea. So, um, delving back into your past a little bit, you've you've sort of touched on Dungeons and Dragons there, but it, it wasn't just the most recent edition you had a bit of a, a go at. You're sort of like heavily involved in fourth and, and before that as well. So what was your time like working with Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, it was interesting. You know, there's a, I, I guess I started working uh, in an official capacity with Wizards of the Coast uh, way, way back in the latter days of third edition. Uh, so I guess it was a last the last couple of years of third edition, I, my first product I worked on was the uh, Tome of Magic. There were three designers and they had carved out their sections. Uh, Ari Marmel had Shadow, True Names went to David Noonan, and Matt Cernet had bind, uh, Binding. And I became the guy who filled in uh, the adventure content and some of the story ideas that kind of lurk around those and kind of framed them all in. It was fun. But that project led to another project, which led to another project, which then snowballed. And, uh, and it seemed like I was working on something almost all the time for wizards which was a lot of fun that culminated uh i guess it was towards the tail end of third 
that they invited me to come on as a full-time contractor. And so my job was to uh, write 45,000 words a month, uh, fourth edition content that went into Dragon Magazine, Dungeon Magazine, and, and, and Hardback, uh, which was, a, that, and at the time I was so hungry and so uh, fraught. <laughs> like literally hungry. Or... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, you know, imposter syndrome that I was willing to, to work this great, these, this, this amount. Sure. But uh, it let me just, I mean, I got to do almost anything I wanted in, in the, the fifth edition run or the fourth edition run. So I, I worked on Star Wars. I worked on Gamma World. I worked on almost every product that was released for fourth, uh, for good or bad. And I had a really good time doing it. Towards the end of that, then they brought me on to work and as a member of the design team for fifth edition. I think that was where all of my weird, bad game design habits just went away. Because I really got to look at, we tackled that, we, we tackled the new edition in a way that I'd never done before. Uh, there was a level of attention to the underlying math, building the architecture for the game, having kind of reassessing what our design goals and objectives were, uh, building through lines so that players can easily uh, grapple with the rules, uh, arguing, endless arguing. Uh, and it was, in the end, I feel like I feel pretty good about how fifth edition turned out. You know, every, everyone is, everybody who was on that team, I'm sure, has their bugaboos about the edition and things they wish they could have changed or fought a little harder for. But I think overall, it's a it's a pretty good distillation of the vi- the various visions of what Dungeons and Dragon is to all the, of all the people who worked on that product, uh, from Mike Merles to Chris Perkins to Monty Cook to Bruce Cordell, myself, Rodney Thompson, and so on. And they were just a lot of people worked on this book, and ever and their fingerprints from all sorts of different sources that you can find pretty much scattered throughout. Yeah, I think it's broader than those people. I think most people in the world generally think it's a good edition, and it's you know, yeah. um, I don't want to use the word compromise. That's wrong, but like you know, a good amalgam or you know, it's better than some of its parts. Possibly is a better way of putting it. But I think there, there was a schism, wasn't there, around the time of fourth? Some people just wanted to stick with three point five and end up down the Pathfinder route, and some people were cleaving to the fourth. I think fifth is the thing that's brought everybody back together and gone like this feels like D and D again, like the one D and D almost. That yeah, think, everybody can get bored with one way or the other. I think one of the things that's really helped with that is uh, fifth edition really, and this is something that was a conscious decision, I think, on a lot of our parts, was trying to make a game that would speak to fans of all the all of the editions that came before. So if you dropped out from playing D and D in second edition, you're going to find some second edition elements in this game that'll kind of that, that'll make it feel familiar. Similarly, there are pieces in this game that speak to the third edition rule set and even pieces that speak to the fourth. Uh, the Battlemaster inside of the fighter class, for example, is very much a fourth edition style design. And all that was driven to try to show the audience that uh, we as designers were good custodians of their game to make sure that that we, we rebuilt the bridge that I think a lot of people felt was broken uh, with the advent of fourth. And I think fourth edition's biggest problems was not the game system. The game system itself is a lot of fun and I had a really great time playing it and writing for it. But I think it was the combination of dismantling the fundamental truths of what people know and expect about D and D as weird as they are combined uh, as far as setting an IP and combining that change with the very format and structure that underpins character advancement having a player's handbook that doesn't have a gnome or a druid in it seemed very weird. Not having the Great Wheel cosmology as your fundamental cosmology felt very, very weird. And I think it was, and it was so alien to a lot of the audience that I think that that's where a lot of people just rejected the game system outright and used a lot of straw men attacks in order to justify their their bad feelings for breaking up with their first true love. <laughs> so... Was there a great deal of pressure on you as a designer? Because as you as you just said, it wasn't necessarily the design of fourth edition that, that caused some issues. So as a designer, one of the designers of fifth edition, did you did you feel any pressure that your design would be not just a good game, but it had to be the game that reunited the tribes? That's quite a lot to ask of someone who's just trying to figure out bell curves and right. modifiers. Well, there was, I have a very vivid memory of having a conversation with Mike Merles and Rodney Thompson outside of outside of the Marriott Hotel. And we were talking about, and I was just arguing about the fact that we've got to make sure that this game can do 
at least get close to simulating every version of D&D before. Without doing that, then we're going to just break the window into one more piece. It's mm-hmm. one more opportunity for us to further segment the audience into their various tribes. We just want one tribe. We want D&D fans. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, part, and I think part of it, and not, not that I'm involved with Wizards of the Coast at all anymore, uh, but I think from an outside perspective, I think that the resurrection of a lot of the classic products uh, and, and making them available through print demand and as PDFs on drive through is a brilliant move because it shows that, hey, this is a big tent company. We support all versions of D&D, and we're going to make sure all the cool stuff that, that went into the various editions that people loved are now available again. And I think that's smart, even while still driving forward with a new game. Um, so it, it sounded a little bit like it was um, the role-playing equivalent of the West Wing as a design team. Was it kind of, I mean, not politicking or anything but like that, but did you all have like your own favourite bits you definitely wanted to get in there and you were willing to give on some of the bits that you perhaps weren't so married to or something? Was it quite a dynamic environment or did you not really get together as much to make that a big issue? It was very, it was, it was very dynamic. Uh, there was a lot of uh, team changes throughout the process which made it somewhat unpredictable. And then there were cases where the design goals seemed to morph into different design goals sometimes overnight. There were a lot of experiments and a lot of dead ends. I think there were probably more dead ends than I think anybody realized. There was, in fact, there was a, at one point, every weapon was kind of treated like a spell where you, the more you invested in your training in a particular weapon, the cooler that weapon got. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it was a neat weapon mastery system, um, but it would have added so much to just as far as content uh, that it, I guess in the end, it just wasn't really worth it. And it's also kind of hard to be able to say what the difference between, you know, a pick and a battle ax. I mean, there are differences, but a lot of this could be like extra damage. It's a lot of the same kind of things you'd expect to have. And some of that, and a lot of that design did get rolled over into the fighter advancement scheme. But, you know, there was, there was arguments there at one point we had tokens for every class uh, there was an assassin class and a warlord at one point. There mm-hmm. were all Titanic rules in the very beginning, uh, and they just went away. There were efforts to drop the whole channel divinity sub-mechanic, blow that up and turn all that into spells. I think turn undead personally would work better as a spell because you have a better control over it rather than or don't have anything else like it in the game. Just make it a weird mm-hmm. word that makes which which that was for the first two editions of the game. Sure. There was a lot of those kind of discussions. Um, there was another, uh, another interesting one was a debate about what is the quintessential ranger for D and D, and I've landed on the side of Aragorn because I'm I, I'm a Gygaxian purist when it comes to the earliest visions of the game, and that we should sync up everything with Gygax and Arneson as much as we can as far as a foundation. But uh, there is another. There's another large body of people who would say that Drist is a quintessential ranger. And we can see, and there's an argument to be made that because of Drist, rangers became the two weapon fighters. They became mm. the guys with animal companions. They're the guys, that, you know, all those kind of things that go into the class design are all in answer to this character that appears in novels and has taken the ranger far, far, far from its roots when the ranger could cast magic missile and could wear, you know, chain mail and <laughs> the wilderness fighter. Yeah. But it was a fun time. And you had, um, you, you didn't just have those opinions. You also had the tens of thousands or maybe even it was hundreds of thousands of uh, the playtest stuff. Cause oh, that right. was, it seems, it seems weird to think back now, but that was quite a big deal then, wasn't it? To open up D and D to a public playtest, which um, I'm sure been done before, not on anything like that scale, could maybe never be done again on that scale. Did you, um, I, I imagine there was like you know playtest day, and you had it circled in red in your calendars when the when all the information was going to come back to you at various points on your big schedules. Was it was it a big deal when that stuff came down? It was an enormous deal. It was uh, both exciting. It was exciting because if we we could get almost immediate feedback on anything we did. It was frustrating because sometimes I felt that. You know, we would have a design and then playtesters would reject the design for for a variety of reasons. My cat sees it, I apologize. <laughs> That's, That's uh, the demon lord right there. Demon, yeah, yeah. Um, so the it was you know, yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of cases where we would have we'd be 
pursuing a particular uh, line of design and then because uh, feedback that line of design blew up. But then I think it also called us on our shit as we were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, something looked weird. Uh, the audience would tell us that they just didn't want the, the game. For example, there was um, early, early days. The design team had become uh, Monty Cook, Bruce Cordell, and myself. And the development team was uh, Tom LaPile, Jeremy Crawford, and Rodney Thompson. I think that was the mix. And then Mike was kind of overseeing the whole thing. Uh, there was a moment where Monty's uh, task resolution system for dealing with skills uh, was a pretty radical departure from what D&D had ever done before. Uh, and it really largely came from a conversation we had had at, at, at Gen Con about my desire to see certain things just become automatic. Mm-hmm. I don't want a 10th level thief or rogue to have to ever bother picking a basic lock. There should be no role there. It should just be automatic every time. And that could just be something that we could just, and, and that was what kind of was chasing. It was like, you know, third edition D&D was all about building the modifier big enough so you you eliminate the need for even rolling. And mm-hmm. so it, it does achieve the same thing by just allowing bonuses to acute, stack and accumulate to such point that you never don't even bother rolling because a roll of a one on a skill check in third edition was not an automatic failure. So what I wanted to do with this was to get away from, you know, chasing the numbers and just bake that into the game so that there are certain activities that characters just automatically did. So what we did, we decided, once it came up with, with a series of grades of skill mastery, and we codenamed them Basic, Expert, Advanced, Master, and Immortal. <laughs> nice. After the BCE CMI series, right? Yeah. And so the deal, if I remember right, and uh, somebody will probably smack me for getting it wrong, but hmm. if you are performing a basic task and you have basic skill in that, or basic ability in that skill, then you make a roll. But if you're an expert, you don't make a roll. And so what happened was it just, and so that would, then we, you could just populate this stuff of like, this door is protected by an advanced lock. Well, if it's one above you, you've got to make a really hard roll. If it's two above you, you can't get it at all. Makes sense, yeah. And the DCs just become fixed basically and you don't have to worry about scaling all that stuff and it works very nicely and neatly with a bounded accuracy system the audience really really didn't like this oh, wow. uh, and we uh eventually had to we eventually abandoned it and went with the proficiency bonus uh system which is what we have now which does yeah. sort of kind of thing sort of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few role playing games now that have that sort of thing, not necessarily that mechanic, but something like that built in to sort of say if you've got a skill at this level or if you're at this, like just don't bother rolling for this, you do it, you know. Right. It's just it's just a way of making your characters seem more awesome because there's things you just do now because yeah. you would. And it's like we were saying earlier about getting to the cool stuff, it's like what we care about is the things that are difficult for these characters. So let's right. not bother with locks anymore, let's have something much more interesting to deal with. Yeah. You know, if you if there's an open pit and there's a way to walk across it without to sidestep it, sidestep it. If there's a closed door and you've got a big, strong, burly fighter, just let the fighter kick the door down. I mean, these are things, if you know the adventure needs to continue, if the only way the adventure can continue is if the player characters can find the secret door atop the cliff, don't ask them to roll to climb the wall because <laughs> otherwise it's not, right? And, you know, these are... You know, this was the whole system that we had come, that Monty had come up with, uh, what I thought was so interesting about it was I really, really did not like the way ability modifiers bumped up against skill bonuses uh, because skill bonuses became more important than the ability score that was driving it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is also true with attack bonus and saving throws. Uh, If I have an 18 dexterity, then I should be freaking awesome at doing dexterity-related things. And that should be true through the life of the campaign. However, uh, you know, if I have an 18 dexterity and I chose to put my ranks in something else, uh, and then somebody who has an 8 dexterity puts 23 ranks and use rope, that character is always going to be vastly superior in rope tying than me, despite the fact that my character has a significant advantage. I mean, yeah. if you're rolling on a bell curve and 18 is pretty hard to get, you're pretty yeah. rare. You're very exceptional just by, just by the nature of the math that, that shows anyway. So I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching the choir, but it's one of those things yeah. that bothers me uh, about, and it's been part of what's been kind of going wrong. We're well, not going wrong, but it's been that 
subtle shift away from using dice to roll your attributes and letting probability dictate your character's strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And instead insulating the player from feel bad by allowing them to allocate points into whatever uh, stats they want. Demon Lord doesn't deal with this at all, right? I mean, Demon Lord, <laughs> here are your stats, move one up, move one down, and here, and that's pretty much it. And, you know, automatic tasks are already built into the game because a Game Master is always interpreting the action. And the Game Master is using common sense to determine whether or not the fighter should be able to kick the door down or or when to make those rolls because it's meaningful and there's, it adds tension to the game. So, and yeah. that's one of those things where it's it's not punting. It's a, you know I didn't just say uh, fuck this. I'm not going to mess with it. I was making this a a, a a serious decision to empower the game masters and to be partners with the players to collaboratively tell a story rather than create an adversarial or antagonistic relationship between those two sides. Which is something that also has come out from. I think the last 15 years, I mean, fifth edition is certainly different, but the last two editions uh, before then were very much us versus the game master mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of get the sense that when, when you were sitting there trying to design the new D&D, you, you all would have had, you, you probably all wanted to go off and like write a game. But it was, but it, sometimes it didn't turn out to be very D and D, and either the fans would tell you that, or you would tell yourselves, or you would realize you were slaying a sacred cow. Is, is that what led you to write your own things as a response to to those brainstorming sessions? Uh, for sure, uh, I, I wouldn't say that Shadow of the Demon Lord is my take on Fifth Edition. Uh, sure, but it is because uh, it does different things and it provides a different play experience, though it shares some. It's, it certainly has D and D in its DNA. Just like it also has Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay in its DNA, and probably Stormbringer and other games. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is there is a, and I think this is also probably true for Monty with Numenera, because I think both of us came away from this experience where we are designing a game in a committee, mm-hmm. and we have our own visions of what we want to do with a game, and you can see the results, the fruits of that that effort or that uh, uh, appearing in, in the games we designed almost immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. first Demon Era, mine was Demon Lord. So it, it's, and in fact, uh, you know, Rodney did Dust, uh, the, the Dust of the Outlaws game, yeah. which is certainly not D&D, but it really speaks to his kind of, um, I think what he looks for in role-playing games, the yeah. more storytelling, fast-paced kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, because D&D can't belong to one person anymore, can it? No, no. And I think that, um, if anything, the OSR movement has really shown that that D and D really belongs to everyone. Mm, yeah. What's your take on the OSR movement, Rob? Because I mean, I think some of the, I think there's a big Venn diagram. I'm not sure of Demon Lord in some of the stuff that's happening in OSR land. I don't pay as much attention to the OSR movement as I should, or as I want to. But I freaking love everything. Not everything. <laughs> but I love the attitude about. This is how I want to play the game. And these are my house rules. And I'm going to release those to the wild. And this is what we're going to do. And I think that's okay. At first, there was a, there was a nasty term for people who made their own versions of D&D, and they called them heartbreakers. But now, like, the investment cost is so low that if you want to do your particular turn or your homage to basic D&D or Redbox or Second Edition or whatever the hell you want to do, do it. I think that a lot of the adventures that are coming out and a lot of the content for these games are many of them are edgy and many of them are very controversial, but some of them are just fantastic and full of brimming with ideas. One of my dearest friends, Cecil Howe, he does a lot of the cartography for Demon Lord. He's really big into uh, the DIY crowd and uh, his uh, game, uh, Let Us Not Starve on This Cold Winter Night, is kind of as his old school sensibility about managing a little town in the winter and not starving to death. And that's, mm. it's, it's very low tech, lots of tables and it's wonderful. It just, it's, it just drips flavor uh, in a way that I think that a lot of other games fail to kind of uh, capture, you know, you can do so much with one sentence uh, and a lot of these, or you can even do a lot more with a sentence fragment and then appear in a lot of these, uh, these, these supplements. And then you look at, just one throwaway line that sparks your imagination. And then you read 50 pages of a mega adventure by a big box company. And 
you're not getting anywhere near the same intellectual stimulation if that makes any sense yeah it does yeah yeah it's a little bit it can be a bit novocaine sometimes kind of you get a big book you kind of lose some of the ideas that you read early on because you've got so many pages you're going through whereas i think you're right there's a lot of the sort of osr or self-published games tend to be like here's my goal these are like it's like the first album almost with like all the great ideas and you know so so what you get is really good gameable content which is certainly what the sort of likes of being past one anyway so you mentioned um, D&D DNA, and I'm going to recruit you now for a little bit of advice, possibly. We've got Dragon Meat coming up this weekend, which is a convention down in London. And with the good friends of Jackson Elias podcast, we're having a bit of a face-off. We did this uh, about three or four years ago. And the question this time is, aren't all of the role-playing games just customized versions of Dungeons & Dragons? Which is a hard one to defend, arguably. But I wonder if you had any thoughts on that or any any tips for us in defending that question, saying that basically D&D... Is the grandfather of everything, or anything like that? Have you have you got any opinions around that, or any any tips for fighting off the the challenges yeah, you might receive? I could probably I can I can really understand that argument, uh, and I really get the argument. I think that is that was probably true, and it's still largely true. But there are some big, big exceptions to uh, huge exceptions. World of Darkness, for example, is not a game that uh, that that is uh, reskinning a D and D in any way because uh, I it often and this is probably going to get me a lot of hate mail, but I kind of always found that World of Darkness games are the more times you pick up dice, the worse they are. Uh, so you aren't really engaging with the rules as much as you are just engaging in the mood and the interactions between you and other characters and the and the story situations that kind of crop up naturally as you're kind of telling your your your, uh, your your story i think that you know fundamentally if you know if you're if you're talking about D being everything being a reskin of that if we're talking about the relationship between one character who happens to be the narrator referee what, whatever game master and a group of players and the relationship between those agents in the playing of the game then yes there but even that is flawed because there are plenty of games that don't use game masters or are gm free so i'm not sure if that also holds either i think and then when you think about like games like fiasco that doesn't really match or marry into that concept very well either yeah but yeah it's time ahead of us i'm not i'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to this blind but <laughs> i think it'll uh, it should stimulate a decent amount of conversation around you yeah. know what what would role play be like if it hadn't been a and D, and would there be a role playing industry and that kind of thing? Those are sort of sure. questions we can try and some bring out, maybe. Well, end it with a knife fight, make sure. So, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we're bringing a base attack bonus, and all they've got is like some pithy phrase that they could use to activate a dice. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not going to be. A just going to try and hit us in the annuity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So one of the games you've got in your back catalogue um, is the, uh, now then, let me get it right, Song of Ice and Fire. I was going to say Game of Thrones, but I got, managed to stop myself in the last minute. So how, how do you feel no. to sort of like write for something that's so iconic, I guess, now? like, Did, did you feel an extra burden there that you've got something that fans are super in love with before you even pick up the, a pen or a keyboard to write? It was a, a very interesting time to write that, that book. At that point, we had already... Design had started on A Song of Ice and Fire, but then I was transitioning away from working for Green Renine. And so I need to, I finished up the player's guide and then I was working on the campaign guide while I was working for Wizards. Sure. Um, so it was a lot of stuff. The thing is that on the time, you know, when we were working on this book, there wasn't a TV show. Right. Uh, yeah, there were rumors of a TV show in the works. We weren't having to deal with the, the, the cultural shift that came from HBO's accidental stumbling into, uh, you know, a fantasy series, right? Since Game of Thrones has become popular, you know, you can go to like a Mexican restaurant and see a T-shirt that says uh, "Refried beans are coming" with that or at, on the <laughs> and then it's like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, <laughs> it's or or you know, uh, so it's it's very strange. Uh, yeah. Time it was. I, I tackled this project like I had tackled Thieves World and Black Company, where my goal was to be as faithful to the writing as possible, to produce and pre to present a rule set that would allow you to emulate the experiences uh, explored in the book, and allow you to tell your own stories. And I, and I think we more or less hit that target with this game. 
it's been, it's one of the, it's for me, it always feels like the game that I, I keep forgetting that I worked on because mm-hmm. it was a frantic and scary time while I was trying to learn fourth edition and still my head was cluttered with Warhammer fantasy role play. And I had all these other things that were going on. So it was a, uh, it was really chaotic. Uh, apparently though, it's really popular in Brazil. So that was, that was <laughs> okay. I was delighted to see the, a lot of love for uh, song of ice and fire when I went down there last year. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Winter is not coming there, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. The only Brazilian I know lives in Iceland, so he's probably (laughs) he's really living it. (laughs) Cool. And you also used to work on the old Warhammer back in the day. I did a little bit of that. Did that kind of like has that informed Shadow of the Demon Lord at all, or was that just a a different phase of your life altogether? No, that was uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has has been my favorite role playing game probably for as from the moment that I discovered it until the present. And I'm really, really excited by what I'm seeing in the new fourth edition rules. I think it's like mm. they've done a bang up job. It looks good. It's true to the spirit of the game. And I couldn't have done it better myself. Maybe, maybe I could have, but we'll see. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good company and I love everybody over there. And uh, yeah, the reason why, so I got, uh, I, I, I was hired by Green Running Publishing to take over the D20 line development and to manage all the products we were doing for D&D compatible things. While Chris Premis was working on Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition. Uh, I got to work on the core book a little bit. I had a chunk of that. And then I believe I came in. There was one book after that that I think Chris did. It was Sigmar's Heirs was the first book that Chris developed. And then he pulled himself out of Warhammer almost completely and started working on what would... Uh, a version of Warhammer 40k. So Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay came to my desk, and I was become I became the line developer for both the D20s products and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And so I guess it was from Realms of Sorcery on that I was managing that product. And I think really during and it was it was exciting time because uh, during my stewardship we had it, I think it was the, the most popular time of that era because that would have been the Lord of the Lich Lord, Children of the Horned mm-hmm. Rat. Uh, Night's Dark Master, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and Tome of Corruption and Tome of Salvation, and we did all those. We did a lot of really exciting books in that in that era. Yeah, I had a lot of fun, and it taught me a lot about game design and also managing lines, which has taught me, which is the kind of the lessons I learned from that have informed a lot of what I do for Lord, uh, Demon Lord now. Yeah, yeah, because there's a difference between between writing up a spell section and uh, and getting freelancers on board and getting the art direction right and the right. business of running a game is is this is there still room for creativity in the running of a business it's hard uh, you know I'm a company of one with a handful of contractors who work by the job and it is my you know I spend my day being the marketing guy the shipping guy the creative director I manage the editors I do the art direction uh, manage the layout. I, mean, I don't do the layout, but I keep an eye on that. And we do all that. I approve every part of the process. So my day is filled with all these different tasks. Uh, and yet I'm still the one who is largely driving the creative vision of the game. So I'm, mm. I do almost all the writing uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult, but it's, it's exciting. You know, never, there's never a dull day in a uh, demon Lord land. <laughs> you've got to love it right got to, this is the sort of thing where you've got to have a passion for what you're doing otherwise you know no one's getting it just for the money are they you've got to be right. loving what you do day to day yeah very much and you know with demon lords it's good because I, uh, for me because i also designed it with a with chunks that you can add content to uh i think like, for example fifth edition i think as counter example fifth edition is a game that's very very difficult to add content to the way spells are designed in that game, it almost prohibits the creation of any new spell because spells have a much larger footprint than they did in previous editions. Once you have the ability to cast Fireball, you will probably always cast Fireball because you'll spend higher level spell slots to burn a bunch of people to, you know, that's what you're going to do. In previous editions of the game, Fireball was, and always was, a third level spell and there would be Delayed Blast Fireball would be a bigger, sexier version and then you might have some other big, scarier fire spell later on. Fireball was still useful, but it, it never really fell out of the game. But there were other cooler, sexier choices 
that kind of really spoke to the level at which the spells cast. Sure. Uh, Demon Lord doesn't have that problem because spells don't expand. They're just spells. They're things that exist in the world. And being a thing, a thing does what it does by dint of its power uh, and its place and what it's trying to achieve. And more complex tasks require more powerful effects, which allows me to do, which is why occult philosophy ballooned out to 800 spells. Uh, but it also means that there's fertile ground for coming up with new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was just going to say, so it sounds like the future of Demon Lord, 30 products, there's still plenty to do and it's ever expandable. Um, so can you see beyond that time though? Can you Have you got any visions of what you might be doing in a, I don't know, five years from now? <laughs> I, I, I probably could tell you what I'm doing in three years from now. Uh, we're... So Demon Lords, this Kickstarter right now is pretty much my last run through uh, with Shadow. That's not to say I won't continue to producing stuff for it, but it's going to be at a much slower rate. I think that uh, 200 SKUs will probably be enough for for folks to be able to play with that game and get as close to complete as they want. Um, So starting next year, uh, as I wrap up obligations from this Kickstarter, I'm shifting uh, focus to uh, Against the Shadow board game. Uh, and Punk Apocalyptic. Those are the two big things for 2019. And Punk Apocalyptic is based on a miniatures game uh, of the same name. And it is like Godless in the sense that it's a post-apocalyptic game, but it's far nastier and but funnier. Uh, it's an irreverent game, uh, full of vulgarity and filth and, and, and ultra-violence. Uh, 2020, my big focus is probably going to be on Free Companies of Four Towers, which is my um, love letter to Greyhawk. Nice. I hate saying love letter to anything. Uh, here's my love letter. <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to use words, sentences with the word love in it. It's got to be a hate, like right. a poison pen letter or a ransom demand. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, four companies and uh, Abaddon, the Angel of Void, which is my science fiction game, are both 2020. Uh, they're penciled in for 2020. And I imagine that for every one of these new games that I do, there'll be a substantial number of adventures and a substantial number of expanded content so that uh, maybe not of the same quantity of Demon Lord, but of but it should feel like it's a well-supported game. Right. Yeah, I suppose switching games to a certain extent does give you like, it lets your creative muscles flex in a different way, doesn't it? It gives you something, it gives you new avenues, basically. You've got better outlets. Like with uh, with free companies, which has been my current obsession, and I take whenever I go to the bar and drink, I always have my journal with me, and I'm always just furiously jotting down notes. It is a fantasy world, and it takes, but it, it's a fantasy world that is that I'm building to do one thing very, very well. Uh, it is bound to a city that was ruled or built by a mad wizard, and under it were these uh, many layers of dungeons below, in which he kept weird portals to other worlds and monsters and, and strange relics and all those kinds of things. Wizard goes missing, and now the place is kind of falling apart and things are starting to bubble up from below. So the city has decided they're going to allow free companies to go in, join one of the guilds, go down into the into the dungeons, clear them out, and keep a measure of what they find uh, with a few rules. Um, but this also... So that's a really simple premise and very D&D-focused, very Greyhawk and even Forgotten Realms-focused. But it lets me do so much about like, well, I don't have to have dwarves in this world, but if I want to have dwarves, they're not going to be a player race. They're going to be a bunch of bastard miners who are breaking <laughs> into the dungeons to the side and bypassing the whole thing and robbing people as they go down and come up. And, you know, I can I can bring elements of Demon Lord in, but I don't have to be focused on apocalyptic endings and poop jokes or, you know, just the, the wretched filth that seems to permeate so much of, uh, of the Demon Lord's IP. And allows me to explore not a, necessarily a happier fantasy, but more traditional uh, avenues of uh, fantastical development. <laughs> so excited about can, it. Where you can walk in on your mum masturbating. Right. <laughs> that would be an inappropriate adventure for this for this one, but it, it still could be done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I think, unfortunately, we're coming up to the end of our hour now as well, so that, that's uh, that's flown by. Um, where can people find you then, Rob, if you want to get more Shadow Lord goodness or they want to uh, check out what you're up to? Where, where do they come for? Uh, best place on my website, uh, schwabentertainment.com. You can also find me on Kickstarter and the Occult Philosophy Shadow the Demon Lord Kickstarter. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, MeWe, 
Discord and something else. Yeah, oh, G+, that's still around for now. Generally, if you're on any one of those platforms, you do a search for Robert J. Schwab, you'll find me. Uh, Twitter, my handle is at RJ Schwab, and uh, on Discord, I am DemonLord666. Nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grab a bunch of those links and stick them into the show notes so people can find you more easily as well. Cool, thanks. Brilliant. Well, it's been uh, awesome to speak to you. Great insights from uh, all your gaming activities there, Rob. Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk to you guys, and I can't wait to do it again. Cheers, Rob. Thanks, mate. Thank you.